WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Annalee Newitz, and I'm co-hosting this week's show with Brooke Gladstone. All across the country this month, people are celebrating queer and trans pride. We're having parades, cookouts, dances, family gatherings, and drag queen story hours for kids in libraries and schools. It seems like the LGBT community has never been more visible. And yet the future of this community feels darker than it has in a long time. Across Florida, protests against the so-called Don't Say Gay bill. Officially, the Parental Rights in Education bill, it prohibits classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. And across the nation, an attack on the rights of transgender children. Hundreds of anti-trans bills have been introduced in the past year. Police arrested more than 30 members of a white nationalist group in Idaho. Officers confronted the Patriot Front group on Saturday. Dozens were piled in the back of a moving truck. Police say they were traveling to a Pride event where they were hoping to set off a riot. A lot of these attacks, whether they come from Proud Boys or elected officials, seem to reinforce the idea that LGBT people cannot survive or thrive in places outside a few coastal cities. But this has never been true. A study from the Movement Advancement Project in 2019 revealed that at least three million queer people live in rural America, and they have no interest in fleeing to big cities for protection. Ray Geringer has spent the past 10 years chronicling the lives of what they call country queers. It's for an oral history project and a podcast of the same name. Ray's subjects are LGBT people who are living in rural parts of the United States, in small towns and remote farms, and they're taking great joy in it. From Makana, Hawaii. I think it's very beautiful when the sun's going down and the light is turning like that golden red color. When it shines on these mountains, it creates these huge shadows, like beautiful shadows in the ridges. To Prospect, Virginia. My great-grandparents bought 40 acres of land and they're at the turn of the century. And actually, if you think about it, my great-grandfather would have then been a black man traveling from West Virginia. Wrap your head around that. Out of the original 40 acres, 35 are still here. Growing up without TV or internet in rural West Virginia, 
Ray didn't hear any stories of queer and trans people living in their state, and it didn't improve much when they left for college. The only accessible stories of queer people in rural spaces and trans people in rural spaces that were available in the early 2000s were the stories of the murder of Matthew Shepard and the murder of Brandon Tina, right? And so Boys Don't Cry, I think, was the first movie I ever saw that had rural queer people in it. And that's a horrible story. <laughs> that's a horrible, yeah. horrible story. What about uh, when you finally got to college, things like the L word, for example, did you see anything in there that felt like it was applicable to your life? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I do remember <laughs> the L word came out when I was in college. And I remember it was like this whole thing. And some friends like rented the whole DVD set, right? Because we like didn't have TVs in our dorms uh -huh. and had this whole like watch party. But I was like, is this real? Like, where is this happening? Who are these people? <laughs> Provocative. Can you stay here with me? If I didn't know it was you, I would have thought someone hot just walked in. The L Word. Same sex, different city. Sundays at 10, only on Showtime. Well, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It did not feel like my life or experience in college, but definitely like no part of it had felt like it existed on the same planet as where I grew up. So A, that there is a coffee shop. B, that everyone can get <laughs> there and meet up and find each other. C, that it's like totally fine to be queer and talking about your sex life in public. <laughs> None of this. Your oral history project, Country Queers, is basically a corrective to the false dichotomy of rural death and city joy. Um, it's mm. documenting the lives and work of queer and trans people living in different parts of the American country. So I'm wondering, how did this project come about? After being gone for about 10 years, I finally moved home in 2011 and really quickly started to see queer people, right? I was just like in a different place with my own queerness. I was much more tuned in to sort of who was around me. And so we'd like give each other the nod at the Walmart or like at the state fair or wherever we'd see each other. And people also started to really tell me now that I was home and I was out, people I'd grown up with would be like, oh, there was these two men that lived in a house together down the road when I was a child and nobody ever called them partners. But they weren't related and they shared a life together and raised sheep together and went to church together. And I just like started to get really frustrated because I felt like I'd been lied to by omission, both locally in terms of growing up and it just wasn't talked about. Mm -hmm. But also, I think in this sort of national context of there being just like a complete absence of any evidence that we not only like can live in these places, but often do that we've always been here. And that's not exclusively an experience of like violence, harassment and death, right? That can be a reality that has been a reality in rural places, but it also has been a reality and continues to be in cities for many queer and trans people, particularly trans women of color. And so I just got really frustrated and, and decided I wanted to try to meet and learn from other rural and small town, gay and queer and trans folk. So it's kind of set out with a recorder. So you have said that the format of the oral history project was kind of accidental. So what made you gravitate to it and then stick with it? There is a journalist and an oral historian that I really admire based in North Carolina named Cynthia Greenlee. And I heard her speak once and she talked about having to really like readjust her approach to oral history interviewing as someone who was trained as a journalist because she realized that it's more like porch sitting than it is like a journalistic interview. And I really love that description. And I think that 
Oral history really lends itself well to rural spaces. And I definitely grew up in a place and in a culture where people just sit on the porch and talk. People just tell stories, you know? I mean, the general store gas station where the post office is at the bottom of the hill, you'll all, there's still, every time I go down there, there's a row of guys sitting on the porch just talking. And so I think that that sort of, in some ways, the informality of oral history is is something that I really love about it. We've so often been documented from the outside, right? And I think that goes for queer people, that goes for trans people, that goes for so many communities of color. I think it's really Mm -hmm. rare that we get to sort of reclaim narratives about ourselves as rural people. I know that's true for people living in the Appalachian region in terms of national media. And I think it's really true for queer and trans people, too. Yeah, I love that. I love that it's just a casual conversation that can also mean so much. It can mean the difference between feeling like you're alone and feeling like you can have a conversation with other queer people. And, you know, the project has grown quite a bit. And you've said that another goal for the country queers oral history is to challenge the myth that rural America is just this conservative monolith. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that wasn't sort of initially my idea with the project. It was really, I I needed this. Like, I needed to find other rural queer people and understand how they were making it work. I had a lot of questions about whether or not I could pull this off. Some days I still do, honestly. (laughs) But um, (laughs) it's taken on some new purpose for me in terms of providing somewhat of an intervention in the way that we think and talk about rural spaces in media in this country. And I think that still so often, especially at kind of a national level, the representations of rural places are very flattened, are very boiled down into something that's that doesn't reflect like the richness and the fullness and the contradiction of our spaces. The economies of rural places are really varied, right? There are places like closer to where I'm living that are like completely the boom has passed and these towns are suffering. There are towns in rural Texas I passed through that seem to be thriving. And it's not in some like rural gentrification process. They just, they never died for whatever reason. They have an economy that can sustain it. The geography Mm -hmm. is so different. The political climates are really different. There are these pockets of like very liberal and progressive rural communities all over the country. And then there are of course, like incredibly conservative and places where, queer people and especially I would say queer and trans people of color feel really unsafe. Like there's just so much variation in what is held within the description rural, right? My hope for media representations of rural places is that that our places are allowed as much sort of nuance and contradiction and complexity as any maybe collection of stories about New York or the Bay is. So to some extent, your oral history project is concerned with raising the visibility of these country queers. And at the same time, especially right now, there's a ton of conversation about whether increased visibility is actually helping queer and trans people or if it makes some people less safe. So how do the folks that you're talking to deal with this risk in their lives? Mm, That's a great question. Yeah, I, th- I think about this a lot. The original dream and vision of the project was really about making ourselves visible to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that there's something really important, particularly, I think, for rural queer people who've been told maybe much of our lives that there aren't people like us here or that this is a new phenomenon or that this is influence from cities or from mainstream media. I think there's something really powerful in sort of like 
claiming the reality that we've actually always been here and trying to find those stories, trying to connect with each other around those stories. But at the same time, like, of course, in this day and age and on the internet in general, like, you can't control where things are going and how they're going to be used. Have you heard anything from your sources and the folks that you talk to about how they're rethinking the way that they're out or how they're maybe changing the way that they talk about themselves because of the backlash? Not really. I um, have been interviewing in the past week a queer couple in the closest town to me who advertised on Facebook that they were hosting a drag brunch at their plant store and then got an eviction notice pretty immediately. And the community responded, for the most part, really positively and organized an equality march in town. And this is a town of about 2,700 people. And as far as I know, the drag brunch will be the first like public gay event to ever happen in this town. And, you know, a lot of people online are saying things to them like, come over to this town where it's more liberal or come to this city, you know, in West Virginia city in air quotes, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, we don't want to go. For them, the more resistance that they're getting, the more they want to stay. They're like, if if we are ruffling feathers, it means we're doing something right. And it's not the only queer owned business in the town, but it's the first queer owned business that talks about being a queer owned business in town. And... Mm -hmm they get a lot of people coming in of all ages, like not just young people coming in and talking about how important it is for them that there's just like a physical space, even though it's a store, you know, it's a store that sells plants. It's not like a community drop-in center, but in some ways it serves as that. But they also talked about having people in their fifties and sixties come in who have never publicly come out. And so if anything, I think I hear a lot of people sort of like digging in and rooting deeper into really wanting to stay in and change um, and support other, and in particular support younger queer and trans people in rural places. Yeah, there's been just so much awful news for queer and trans folks living in the United States over the past year. I mean, there's the don't say gay laws, there's other laws targeting trans kids and queer communities in Texas and Florida and many other states. There's scapegoating of drag performers, even in the city where I live in San Francisco. The human rights campaign has found that there's a rise in pride parades and other events like the drag brunch that you mentioned in rural areas and small towns just this year in the past maybe couple of years. And I've been thinking a lot about what Adrienne Marie Brown calls pleasure activism, which is the need for marginalized people and particularly trans and queer people to experience joy just to survive, just to feel like they can go on another day and imagine a better future. And I wonder if that resonates with you and your project. So much so. Yeah, so much so. I mean, I think it's important to talk about the fullness of our experiences, right? Like, I don't want this project to deny the realities that a lot of rural queer people and a lot of rural trans people in particular face some, like, real intense struggles. But at the same time, I think for a long time, the only stories that were accessible, particularly about, like, rural queer lives were those of, like, violent murders. Like, that's the only thing I could find when I started this project in 2013, which mm -hmm. in some ways is not that long ago. And so, like, what brings you the most joy in your life? And so often they're like this, like sitting on my porch right here or walking in the woods with my dogs or getting to hang out with my grandma. You know, it's like, it's about being home. It's not about leaving. And so I think claiming joy in rural spaces 
as queer and trans people is so important. And maybe that's part of why these really new pride events feel so powerful, right? Is because we claim joy in private, <laughs> like at each other's houses, right here. But we don't do it publicly very much. And that feels like a new, like a new wave, I think, that's happening in a lot of rural places right now. Can I ask what gives you joy about living in the country? What's kept you there all this time? I mean, it's not all <laughs> a walk in the park. It's just not. Jobs are hard to find in the region I live in central Appalachia, not to mention jobs where you can be out at work, where you can mm -hmm. also make a living wage. Education opportunities are scarce here. There's a lot that that is hard here. Internet access is hard here. <laughs> Dating <laughs> is really hard here. But there's like nowhere on the planet that I love as much as this place. And every time I leave, I'm so homesick. I'm so homesick. And when I come home, it's like, it's like my whole body can relax in a way that it just never does anywhere else. And I, I mean, there's just nothing that makes me happier than like taking my goats on a walk down in the woods and watching them climb and jump off of rocks and wander around tasting things. Swimming in the river that's at the bottom of this mountain is like one of the most joyous things I've ever experienced in my life. Driving around in my truck, playing country music with the windows down on these back roads brings me so much joy. Thank you so much for joining us, Ray. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Ray Geringer is the founder of the oral history project Country Queers and the host of a podcast of the same name. They are a senior fellow at the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California. Thanks for listening to this week's Podcast Extra. On The Big Show this week, we ponder the legal consequences of the January 6th committee's findings. See you then. I'm Annalie Newitz. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.